These things are the result of people's choices. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. With me today we have Eric. Morning. And we have Karen. Oh, tell me when we start recording. I'm almost awake. <laughs> and we have Tracy. Good morning. Is it, is it too early for you, Karen? What? <laughs> yeah. I'm up. I'm she, up. Somebody press. Somebody press record. I'm up. I'm not sure if we've ever mentioned before, but we we record on Saturday mornings, early Saturday mornings, because it just works out the best for all of our schedules, so that we can still have family time, even in this time of uh, of uh, what they call it shelter at home. And Safe uh, these days, yeah. And so you know, we're all we're all still in our own homes right now, recording remotely. Uh, but yep, it's still pretty early for. Well, I mean, I'm usually up and at work by now, but. It is Saturday morning, and so my body's saying, what are you doing? Um, but anyway, uh, so speaking of the shelter in place, um, you know, we hear a lot of things about the negatives and all the, uh, you know, the garbage and the, the, the rumors and all this stuff that's going on. But I just wonder, can you guys each share maybe something positive that has come out of this for you? Like, for example, even though I'm considered essential, uh, and go to work every day, coming home, especially on the weekends, and having the whole family here has really provided some closeness for us. You know, we spend more time, you know, playing board games, eating meals together, just things that don't really generally happen for us when we're all able to run our own directions. So what about you guys? Who wants to go first? Why don't you go first, Tracy? I'll go first. Um, you know what? Being essential... I mean, I still get up and go to work every single day. Um, being in the medical field, I, I see tons of people at this point. But I think their health and their safety, I think everybody's put that in the forefront, or at least a lot of people have. So I think that's, you know, that's a positive. As far as my family goes, I would have to agree with you. We are more, there's more closeness. I think we've had more communication you know, just in this this time because everybody's not ripping and running and got a million places to go. The dinner table has become a focus now. So, yeah. you know, I think that's good. You know, I, I don't know if technology is has been the greatest thing. We've, we've had to be on the little one an awful lot to kind of keep him off technology so much. But I definitely am getting more up to speed on the computer, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay. What about you, Eric? Uh, it's driven me to prayer a whole lot more. And mm. um, realizing that uh, answers um, A, B, and C have to be prayer in Jesus. And there's a difference between the theory and the intellectual knowledge and the emotional ability to grasp that. Um, because uh, we're healthy, and I appreciate that. But everything else is pretty much the wheels have fallen off. Economically, it's just it's devastating um, because uh, my wife's work is cut back by at least 75, 80 percent. 
And our other three businesses are all zeros, but the expenses continue, and I am receiving no help of any kind from federal, state, nothing. Um, so it's it's really bad. Um, and so it's really just driven me to prayer, not, not for the economic stuff, but just for my, my um, realizing that, that God is the only answer. And in reading in Exodus here, it's really given me a different perspective as we get ready to get into this, knowing that the, the, the Israelites at that point had no power. They, they couldn't do it. They didn't have right. anybody that was going to come to their rescue um, except for God. And yeah. I think any illusion that we that I've had, I won't force this on anybody else, but any illusion that I've had that help comes from somewhere else has definitely been put in a very, very different light. Yeah, that's good. How about you, Karen? Well... I don't have a whole lot of great things to say. Um, this is really hard for me. Mm. Probably the probably the best thing that's come from it has to do with my work. So I work for local government, and probably probably the best thing there. So so my work has stayed steady, although I'm working from home, and I'm one of the few people who has the freedom to come and go from the office as needed because I am, I am the, the, the grease that makes seven different departments work. And probably the best thing that's happened is that my, all of my department's appreciation for me has escalated hugely. And that, that is about the only thing positive going on for me. Other than that, I am, intensely stressed and isolated and lonely and everything else mm. well we're here karen yep and I, I think karen don't overlook the fact that the help that you provide to those government agencies multiplies out to all of the people that they serve i know and i love that feeling i love that feeling i've always liked being the person in the background who makes the bigger thing go i like that yeah. So I, I really treasure that, but, but I've always treasured that about my job. It's just that other people's awareness and appreciation of my particular role has escalated. And that's been very helpful Sweet. for me. Good. All right. Well, let's get into our study today. Uh, today we start a new book. We are going to start the book of Exodus. Now, I usually start with a recap, but the the, but the book of Exodus actually kind of starts with its own recap, and it reminds us that 70 people came from Canaan to Egypt, and I say 70 plus because you might remember last week we were talking about, and if you read through the names of all the people that come, you come up with 70, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to include wives, it doesn't seem to include servants, and I don't think it was including daughters, so it was pretty much just sons of sons, basically, but 70, so at, at any rate, at least 70 people came from Canaan to Egypt because of this great famine that had lasted, was going to last for seven years, and they got set up in the land of Goshen in Egypt, But by, and uh, this was all because of the story of Joseph, which we spent a couple of episodes talking about. Now, an entire generation has passed, or at least one generation has passed. I've was trying to find some some kind of idea of exactly how long uh, the Israelites were in Egypt up to this point, and I couldn't come up with a good number. I did come up with one source that was very interesting because 
I've always had in my head that the Egypt or that the the Israelites were in Egypt for literally hundreds of years. Yeah, four hundred says in the four hundred writer mm-hmm. says estimate. Okay, but get this: if you look at it, get, we're given a little genealogy. I don't remember where this was. Um, and I'm going to skip forward here a little bit. I'm trying to remember where I read this, but we're given a slight genealogy because we start it. Between Levi to Moses, so that has to be in. Um, oh, it's in it's in chapter two. I'm gonna skip sl- just to chapter two here slightly, but okay. Levi has a son named Kohath. Kohath has a son named Amram, and Amram has a son who gets named mm-hmm. Moses. Right. That's only a few generations away, and I don't know how old. It doesn't tell us how old each one of these men was when these sons were <laughs> born. And I don't really have a good indication of how old any of these... Oh, yes, we do. Levi lived to be 137. Kohath lived to be 133. Amram lived to be 137. Uh, But I don't have any indication of how old they were when they had the sons. Okay, so that's only a few generations. Mm, Hang on. So I've got this Bible that has a timeline running down the center column. I was counting on you, Karen. (laughs) So in, in Exodus chapter 1, where it's talking about these are the names of the children of Israel who came into Egypt, uh-huh. that has that listed as B.C. 1706. Okay. Okay. When you get to chapter 2 and it says, and there was a man of the house of Levi who took a wife, who took to wife a daughter of Levi, right? When it comes mm-hmm. down to that, it has that listed as 1571. So 1706 to 1571 and then by the time you get to chapter 3, when Moses is keeping the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, in Midian, we're at 1491. So that's just kind of scholars' best cumulative estimates as we go along. But mm-hmm. that's what I've got there. Okay. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing. Is um, I, had, I mentioned I was speaking in church one time and um, uh, doing the sermon. And my grandfather was privileged to have him come. And I referenced that the Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And yes. he, took, he, he came to me afterwards, and I was hoping that he was going to say, good job. And what he said was, they weren't slaves for 400 years. It's like, well, Grandpa, what? Now, it's important to point out that my grandfather was a, a Bible scholar. He was a pastor, and he, he knew his Bible, and he read Hebrew, and he read Greek. And... Mm-hmm. He and I was like, "Well, how, Grandpa, why?" And his thing was that the reference in the New Testament to them being there four hundred years included the wanderings of Abraham and Isaac and yes. Jacob mm-hmm. and all of the good years that they had. And it's and and so that was kind of all lumped together as one thing. And you you know it's related to this idea of um, Old Testament math that you mentioned, it's like 70 people went in. It's like, we look at that and we're like, that's 70. That includes men, women, children, babies, you know, you know, your, your yeah. domestic help, everything. And right. that's just not the way they, that's not the way they kept track of time. That's not the way they counted people. And so when we get 70 people in Egypt and then we get, I don't know how many million or whatever it's going to, we find out later that we need to kind of like, okay, wait a minute, this might be like Hebrew math. Yeah, and given the number of generations that we've got, the two hundred ish years sounds about right because that's time yeah. about what four generations, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe the fifth is happening. And 
what that means, though, is these when it says, oh, where were we here? Um, I think it just gets started in 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 one Exodus one um, nine. Uh, Behold, the people of Israel are too many for us. I mean, they were really reproducing. Like mm-hmm. they they were fertile people. Right. I think that goes back to what we were saying though last week is that still I think you had the Egyptians that were there that were still in amazement that these people were living this long. Yeah. Because when you go back and yeah. look at their their average lifespan, it wasn't that great. So when it says that there got there was a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph, yeah. That that tells you yeah. they went through many more, you know, generations than um than the Israelites yeah. at this point. Um, yeah. you know, when you look at it and somebody's living to 130, 110 and maybe three generations, maybe four generations of Egyptians have already gone by that shortens the, uh, the memory there. And I think that's what you see that, you know what? It's like, these people are number one, outliving us. Number one, reproducing more than us, probably living it, you know, healthier than us. And then I, you know, I always go back and I tell people Goshen God set it up perfectly for them because what that is, is that's in um, the lower half of Egypt, but that's where all the deltas are. So it was fertile land. It was stuff for their crops. It wasn't desert how we think of it. It was fertile land. Yeah. It was like choice real estate at that point. Yeah. So, well, oh, go ahead. Okay. Kat. Hang on. I've been doing a little bit of research here while we're. Well, I'm listening to you guys talk. I promise I was paying attention. So the text where God is talking to Abraham and he says that about 400 years, here's what it is. Okay, so Abraham is still Abram. This is back in Genesis 15. Mm-hmm. And in verse 12, it says, as the sun was, okay, so so where are we at in the story? Um, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him righteousness. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession. But Abraham, Abram ha- but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession? Okay, so this is the oath. This is the big scene where there's this oath. So God says, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old. And he cuts them in half, and right, and then the fire comes down, and God says this to him. Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. Okay? That's mm-hmm. already happening. Right. right? There's no right. descendants yet, but Ab- Abram... Abram is already out of his home and in a country where he is a stranger. Um, yep. He says, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, right? So you already counted them out. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the mm-hmm. sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Okay. So a part of this is already happening. So yeah. if I take my timeline Bible and yeah. I look back, um, when I reach, so so if they came out of Egypt in 1491, so then 400 years is 1891, that takes me all the way back to Abraham and Hagar yep. and that time. That's where that takes me back to. Yeah. Okay, not to belabor the thing, but um, 
one of the sources I was reading on this was talking about how the four there because there's another reference. There's 400 years and then there's 430 years. And this this source I was looking at, and maybe I'll I think I'll post a link on uh, to it on Facebook. But um, they were saying that their this time started with Ishmael scoffing at um, Isaac. There's there's a I don't have the note right in front of me, but there was a specific time and that and it was the event that kind of got uh, Sarah upset about things and started off the whole, you know, sending away uh, Ishmael and Sarah and all that. And so that started that. So I guess the biggest reason I bring this up, though, is because we're going to come across a lot of what we're going to see is discrepancies from what is popularly known about Exodus and what the Bible actually says in Exodus. The, the popular story of of the Exodus has some things like making Moses up to be maybe a little greater than he was, just just little things like that. So, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't seem to me that the the Israelites were actually enslaved for four hundred years, like Eric no. said. This one, this one, in fact, this one source I was looking at actually said it was only like sixty seven years. I couldn't figure out their math though because they. They referenced the the uh, text that gave us that short little genealogy of Levi to Moses, but it doesn't. You, I couldn't figure out any math there that said only sixty seven years. So I don't know. I'd have to study it more. But I'll, I'll post that link there. And, but um, the point of it is, though, they were there long enough to uh, start to grow in numbers rather quickly, and there was time for a new pharaoh to rise. The old pharaoh died. The pharaoh that knew Joseph died. And now there's a new pharaoh, and it says, who did not know Joseph. And this takes me to a little bit of what I was alluding to last week, where Joseph's uh, mode of, of preserving Egypt by um, essentially taxing everyone 20% of their goods and storing it and then later selling it back, well, it served ultimately... It was a good short-term thing because it saved the nation of, of Egypt. It saved a lot of lives. Um, but it was a short-term solution that ended up being kind of a long-term problem for the Israelites because they ultimately get enslaved by Egypt because Pharaoh owns absolutely everything. And now this new Pharaoh doesn't give a rip about the Israelites or Joseph or care that – care or maybe even – I don't know how he wouldn't know, but he's just – he's not uh, – He's not acknowledging that the nation was saved by uh, Hebrew influence or Israelite influence. So the Israelites get enslaved. Uh, they're put to work building the cities of uh, Pithon and Ramses. And um, as we said, they're, they, are, they are reproducing at what the Pharaoh considers to be an alarming rate. And so it says that they outnumber the uh, Egyptians. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know what kind of numbers those were. It'd be interesting to know how big Egypt was uh, as far as population. But um, it's enough It's enough that Pharaoh gets worried, and he starts to tell the midwives, two, two particular midwives, uh, Shifra and Pua, he says that they're supposed to kill all the male Israelite children when they see the women in labor. And those midwives, they're... It says they feared they feared God and they wouldn't do it, and they find a little loophole there, where they just say, "Well, you know what? The babies were already born when we got there." So 
uh, you know, you said you said kill them when they're when the women are in labor, and well, they were already done by the time we got there, so that's why we're not killing them. Yeah, so what it's exactly is honesty, anyhow? <laughs> <laughs> well, to to how honest it is or not, that's maybe a different question. But um, it reminded me of something in Acts, Acts four nineteen and twenty. This is um, Peter is called in in front of the leaders of Egypt for preaching about Jesus. And they say, stop it. You need to stop um, preaching about Jesus. And Peter says this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So what they're saying is, we know what you, the civil authorities, have told us to do. But, um, yeah, we're going to obey God. And then in 529, uh, Peter again says, we must obey God rather than men. And so here you have this tension between civil government, which says do this, and what they believe God has told them to do. And they've said, yeah, we're going with God's thing, even if it, quote, breaks the rules. Yeah, so Pharaoh decides, you know, what, we're just going to go beyond that. And all the boys are just going to be cast in the river. Just period. All the firstborn boys are going to be cast in the river. And this one woman, she she herself finds a loophole and she places her boy in a basket and sets him in the reeds by the river. So she's done what's supposed to be done. I threw him in the river myself. Yep. And the the Pharaoh's daughter finds the boy. There's another discrepancy. Not that not that the Pharaoh's daughter finds the boy, but, you know, all the popular stories have have Moses's mom putting the basket in the river and it goes floating down the river and and you know there's all this peril and trouble and and you know it miraculously then ends up in the reeds where Pharaoh's daughter finds it well no his mom was a little more cautious than that she placed him in the river I'm I'm honestly I'm assuming probably just to hide him for a little bit and probably come back for him I don't know oh, but, yeah. but Pharaoh's daughter ends up finding him and the baby's sister says hey would you like me to find a, a nurse for that baby? And ends up bringing Moses's mom back. Now, keep in mind here, something that was interesting to me. At this point, we don't have a name for this baby. Um, I'm assuming newborn. I'm assuming, I don't know, it was probably a little while before they, she, before they did this. But Three months. Um, it says that. Three months. She oh, hit him you. for three months. Yep. Okay. Thank you. And well, But that was after she had him for a while at home. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that was... So, but anyway, um, let's see. So the mother gets paid, actually gets paid to nurse her own baby and, and, and raise him for a while because it says the child it says the child grew. Don't know how long that was, but eventually she takes the child to back to Pharaoh's daughter, and the daughter takes him as her own son. And this is where the baby finally gets named Moses. Uh, now, the reason I find this interesting is because we're not given any Hebrew name for him. That's a, that's a strictly that would be a strictly Egyptian name. And the name means what drawn up or something like that, because they took him out of the river. Now, I find that interesting because when we get down like to the story of Daniel, you know, you get Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Daniel. And they're all given those guys are all given uh, Babylonian names. But, no, you know, nobody ever calls Daniel by his Babylonian name. And nobody calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Hebrew names. But here, we're not even given a Hebrew name for Moses, which I which I think is interesting, especially considering that Moses, we believe, is the one who wrote the story. 
So the implications here of him being raised this way is that with his birth mother, then he was learning, he would have been learning the culture. He would have been learning uh, the religion of those people. And then when he came to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter, then he would be entrenched in that culture, learning all the ways of the, you know, the royal court and such. So it puts him in a very interesting position between these two people where there's been this conflict. Now, he eventually, he comes across, he comes along, and it's very obvious that he hasn't forgotten where he came from at this point. He, he very much understands, I think, that he's Hebrew. He very much understands that this is a culture that he came from. You have to know that his mother kind of told him the story of what was going on. Uh, but he sees an Egyptian beating uh, a fellow Hebrew, and he kills that Egyptian. And when Pharaoh finds out, he wants he wants Moses dead. So Moses Moses flees and goes goes to Midian. And there, Moses, like any strapping young boy, young boy, young man would, he finds he sees some women in trouble and goes to try to help them. He's forty at this point, I think. Yeah, right? he's forty. Yeah, right. strapping young boy. Bring me one of those. <laughs> He's another yeah. <laughs> well, he's another one of these guys who lives to be over a hundred years old. So, you know, but he the the women, the girls end up being the the daughters of the priest of Midian. We're given a couple of different names for this guy. One of them yeah. is uh, Rule, mm-hmm. and he's later mentioned as being Jethro. So I thought that was interesting. And I wondered, I wondered too, who is he a priest of? Because I mean, I'm sure there were others besides just the Israelites who were probably worshiping God, the the one God. But it seems like in that area there was just there was a lot of uh, of you know pagan um, idolatry going on and and such. So I I wonder I wonder okay. who, Jeth- who Jethro is a priest of. I looked up, I looked up a little bit about this and I looked it up because of that weird text later that talks about God coming to kill Moses and then yeah. like his wife goes and circumcises his son and uses the blood to all of that which we'll get to but I looked up like what was the religion of Midian mm-hmm. and they said you know Midian and I I had forgotten this Midian was actually a son of Abraham so when Abraham got hooked up with Keturah in his old age and had like a whole nother crop of children. Midian was one of those children. So these are descendants of Abraham and they lived right next to the Ishmaelites. So the, so the understanding was that they probably, they probably practiced some form of Abraham's religion, except the major difference was that the Ishmaelites did not circumcise until the age of 13, because that's when Ishmael, their ancestor was circumcised. Okay. So that's what I learned. Okay. Karen's history lesson. I'm done now. <laughs> you can go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. No, that helps. That helps. Information of pain. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Moses ends up settling in with these people. Uh, he he marries Zipporah, the priest's daughter, and they have a son named Gershom. Now the pharaoh, this other pharaoh, now he has died. And the Israelites are starting to, it says they start to cry out to God. And God hears their prayers, and he remembered the covenant. Now, <clears throat> being that these 
people were all descendants of Abraham and more recently Israel and were a handful of generations away, these people had to have known and been taught this idea of that they were supposed to be a great people and that they were supposed to have their own land. And for whatever amount of time they were there, they have been under oppression. And so to say that God remembered the covenant, that's kind of a big thing here because the people have been waiting for this for 400 years. You know, I mean, everybody here has been waiting for it their entire life, assuming that the culture is being passed on through probably, um, you know, in story form, you know, uh, verbal handed down generation to generation. And these people have been waiting for something to happen, but yet seeing themselves serving somebody else and building up that kingdom instead of their own kingdom. Moses, meanwhile, he is tending flocks for Jethro. Seems like shepherding is a good way <laughs> good way in the Bible to learn how to be a leader. I don't know. I'm not sure why, because it seems like there's a lot of time that you'd be spending alone. A lot of time for contemplation. Like um, leaders, like leaders. Yeah, like that. Yeah. Like essentially they're like essentially they're alone and they have to know how to manage that. Like a leader is pretty isolated, honestly, because they become a figurehead and everyone expects these grand decisions from them when they're really just a plain old human. So, yeah, yeah, there's I, I could see a lot of solitude and the ability to like think and learn to do things like herd sheep being very valuable. Decades, decades would be good. You know that, too. And, you know, I think it going back to what Eric said in the beginning when we were talking about, you know, what this whole quarantine thing has done to us, I think it also gives the ability to get closer to God and to pray and to establish a really good relationship with God at that point and kind of to know and to um, be mindful of uh, his voice and when he talks to them. You know, where is it that... Um because I had it in my mind that Moses was 40 when he left Egypt, uh, when he fled Egypt, and that he was about 80 when he went back. And I am not... Did, is that in here, or is that referenced somewhere else? Help me out. I didn't read it here. It may come later somewhere. But I'm thinking the same thing, Eric, that somewhere we're given that that timeline, that range... I'm sure we'll come across it eventually, and maybe that'll be something for us to research this week and see if we can come up with that. Okay, so Timeline Bible here has his birth date as, like, chapter 2, which is when it talks about Moses being born, as 1571, if somebody wants to do some math here. And then chapter 3, where he is keeping the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, is already 1531. So he... He, that is 40, and he's already there. And who knows how quickly that happened, but that's what that has. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well. Oh, and then one more, one more increment. It specifically notes in chapter 3, verse 11, where Moses is talking to God and says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? It specifically has that listed as 1491. Which hmm. is another 40 years, right? So at that point, he's 80. There we go. Well, they must be getting a reference somewhere that we're just not, we haven't gotten it yet. Yeah, oh, sure. Now, those are, this is all like scholars, like scholars who have researched 
everything about, you know, there's people that just kind of specialize in historical timelines and build it out by people's ages and tracking the generations and things like that. Bring it on right. Leviticus. Um, right. And so, and, and there's people that do that and it's, it just, it's, it's a different kind of research and you, and I don't think you get it by doing a chronological reading of the Bible. <laughs> no, well, no, it's, it, there could even be a reference in the new Testament somewhere that talks about it, you know, because yeah. it's, you know, not everything gets written down, but things get, you know, through, through audible, uh, you know, person to person, things get told down through legends and whatnot. And it, I'm sure it's probably where it comes from. It could even be coming later because I'm sure we're told at some point when Moses died, you know, we know I, how old he's going to be and I, all that kind of thing. Like it. So it's probably, yeah, they're, they're working their way backwards. So anyway, Moses is tending flocks for Jethro or rule, whichever name you want to give him. I think he's more normally called Jethro, beside the point. But he comes to Mount Horeb, known as the Mountain of God. And we're told that an, the angel of the Lord, God himself, appears in this burning bush. And we've seen those image, images, you know, all over the place. I think, well, even at our church, our, our baptistry has a big uh, stained glass window that opens up. And that stained glass window is of the burning bush. And if you've seen... Uh, um, you know, Prince of Egypt, I think they do a really neat job of, of that imagery. It's been forever and a day since I watched Ten Commandments with uh, Charlton Heston. But um, to me, I don't know. To me, this would be one of the eeriest uh, and awe-inspiring experiences, though, to see a bush consumed by fire, or not consumed, but, you know, on Burn. fire, burning, but not being consumed. You know, we all know what a fire looks like and you know how quickly if it's, you know, on fire, how quickly a piece of wood catches on fire. And this thing is not it's not being consumed. And God speaks to Moses out of that fire and he calls his name Moses, Moses or however he says it. And Moses answers, here I am. Now, we've talked about this before with one of the previous patriarchs where. When God talked to him, they were just like, here I am, you know. I just thought that was kind of significant that when Moses hears God's voice, is he is he recognizing that this is the God of his forefathers? Is he this eager, ready to answer? Because it's just, here I, here I am. And that seems to indicate. Now, there's no, God leaves no doubt about who this is because he tells him, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he tells Moses that he will deliver the Israelites from their bondage. And then he drops the other the other shoe, so to speak, although they're on holy ground and they weren't supposed to be wearing shoes. Maybe God can wear shoes on his own holy ground. But he says that he's going to send Moses, at which Moses immediately balks. How does he put that? Um Moses Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is, uh, Mo, you know, like we talked before, Moses is in this, this very unique position to be able to uh, relate to both of those societies. And he doesn't seem to recognize that he is in that position. He's in that, you know, he's going to have the ear of, 
Pharaoh. He's going to have the ear of the Israelite elders. I mean, he was brought up in royal court, so he's 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 going to be familiar with their customs and know how to address them. Well, yeah, but this is a, this isn't a this isn't a self evaluation of his qualities. This is just plain old insecurity. Like at this point, he's been a shepherd for forty years. Like he lives out in the wilderness and. He's got a wife and a couple of boys and like he doesn't he's so far removed from that political intrigue. It's been decades. True. Yeah, that's true. Cut him well, some slack there, Matt. Jeez. Oh, I'm not <laughs> I'm not I'm not trying to be judgmental. It's just, you know, he, yes, you are. I heard you. Oh, he's terrible. Terrible guy. Well, uh, <laughs> well, but anyway, he's he now he's balking at the idea. I mean, cool to talk to God, but for God to actually send him someplace that's kind of a different story for him. I am but, 100% sure that if God showed up to me and said, hey, Karen, I've got a job for you to go do, I'd be like, ha, ha, I can't, no, <laughs> no, I I need a nap. I'm going to go home and just read a book and take a nap, and then it'll, it'll pass. Go find someone else. Yeah. I think no, we remember, though, too, that being, you know, being around that and knowing what exactly goes on in that that whole social system in Egypt that he kind of was still thinking, I'm going to go back and they're going to want to kill me. That's first and foremost, you know, and I think that had a lot to do with it because he knew the, just the, the ramifications of punishment. And, you know, when we see people that, you know, they steal, they lose a hand. The Egyptians were pretty much about the same. It's like it was punishable. And he knew that he was already slated for death when he left. That's true. That's absolutely true. The, the the conversation carries on, and Moses finally gets like, well, who do I tell him is sending me? And that's where God comes out with, I am who I am. And I've always loved that phrase because it's such a simple statement from God. It's it's not elaborate. It's not – I mean, he doesn't give himself – even a name, really. He's just like, I am who I am. And and uh, I remember as a young man, younger man, um, <laughs> when I was reading through the Gospels, and you get in the book of John, and Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. That was the time when I it finally clicked with me who Jesus really was. I think I had, for some reason, I had grown up not understanding that Jesus really was God, but thinking that Jesus was a good man, you know, that, okay, he was the son of God, but not, um, I hadn't realized that this really was God, you know? And so just that simple statement of I am who I am, it it transcends to me, it transcends time, it transcends <laughs> space. Um, it's not, I'm, I'm, you know, it's not like I was the God of your fathers. It's not like I'm going to be the God of your descendants. It's just simply I am. Yeah, always and, present tense. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was, he recognizes time, but then he says, I am, which is where it 
blows my mind because we we can't comprehend living aside from time. We have a beginning, we have an end, and as a result, we recognize the passing of time. But to, to for for God to say I am is such um it, it it's really kind of a, just a statement of my existence is far more than yours than you can even really comprehend. You know, we talk about God being able to go through time like a house and going going from one spot to the other. To me, it's almost more like being in in a hall of mirrors where you just turn your head and and you can see everything all at once. You know, and, and it's not really a concept that we can grasp. But but that's that is what that's how God presents himself to Moses it is I am who I am and if Moses was able to grasp any of that he had to have just been in complete befuddled awe I mean I don't even know I don't even know how I would be able to keep talking to God at this point well at some point though as we get into four mm-hmm. um, well three and four is that this um, and you've mentioned this many times before, the angel of the Lord. Um, yep. that, um, we, From references in the New Testament and later in the Psalms, we believe that this was in fact God personally, not a, not a servant of God uh, speaking. This is the Lord, especially when he says, I am who I am. That would be pretty bold for an angel to say that. Yeah. Um, but it, still, Moses, like Abraham, has like... A conversation and essentially makes it tries to make it a deal. It's like, okay, so tell you what, I can't do this. So he's, although he is in awe, it isn't to the point to where he is compelled to do what God asks him to do. Right. Because he, he basically he says again, yeah, not me. I can't do it. They won't believe me. They won't do it. And, and mm-hmm. all of these things. And so he's at least approachable enough that Moses responds. Yeah, well, and since he keeps, he, Moses, kind of keeps balking at it, God starts to, gives him some reassurance, and he tells him, they're kind of like this, he says, the God of Isaac, I'm sorry, my own son is is Isaac, and I can't speak his name, I can't say it, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, uh, I'm sorry, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has seen what is done to you in Egypt. So he, he, he gives himself this title of being that God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it seems to me that this is going to carry weight with the Israelite people because this has been passed down for, our, for these generations that this God is the one who has promised them, that they're going to that, that have better things for them. And this is what he's supposed to go to the people with, tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has seen. He understands what's going on with you, and and he's going to help you. And he tells him that he's going to ask Pharaoh for what I see as a rather simple request. He says, you're going to ask him to take three days' journey into the wilderness to make a sacrifice. Doesn't I mean, that's going to be a lot of people. He's asking for a lot of people to go do this. But he, then he also tells them that Pharaoh's not going to let you go. And ultimately, God says he will strike Egypt, and the Israelites are going to plunder Egypt just by asking them for things. I'm going to try that. 
I've decided that's my new technique. If I want some <laughs> plunder, I'm just going to ask. There you go. Hey, can I have some money? Can I have some? Uh, can I have some some flocks? Can I have some? Uh, <laughs> you have not, because you ask not. <laughs> yeah. See. Hey. There's plunder just awaits. That. Well, I think just keep in mind that um, the reason that Egypt is rich is because of Joseph. Yeah. Right. Uh, he so he, Joseph is the one that set them up and got the wealth of nations for them, and. At some point after Joseph, um, they, Egypt, the Israelites began working for the Egyptians and therefore contributed to the wealth of Egypt. Um, and so essentially what they're getting is back wages. They're like, all right, yeah, you earned all this stuff and, and you won't be sent out empty-handed. Yeah. Now, <laughs> Moses is still... I don't know he's still hesitant through the whole thing, and God says, "Okay, we're going to give you. I'm going to give you some signs to show. Your rod is going to turn into a snake. Uh, if that doesn't work, you know, stick your hand in your jacket there. Look at, oh, hey, man, your hand is is leprous. Put it back. It's better. And if that doesn't work, we're going to turn water to blood, which is it, it. It immediately ticked off something in my head. Where in my notes I wrote down water to wine and water and blood from Jesus's side. That there's some imagery there that could use some contemplation. I don't know if the is I don't know if the Egyptians would have understood that or not. Uh, but Good it definitely hmm? no, Good probably not. no, no, probably not. Uh, but it definitely it definitely rang some bells in my head when I was reading through it this time. So Mosaic keeps making excuses, and this is where we come up with another one of the greatest discrepancies I think between the popular story of Exodus and the biblical story of Exodus. Because Moses is still going, yeah, I can't even, I can't even speak right. Uh, I'm, you know, it says I'm slow of tongue. I've heard it described as um, he had a stutter, possibly, and and he's still afraid. And at this point, finally, God just says, you know what? We're gonna make Aaron your spokesman. Aaron's coming okay, to you. Yeah. <clears throat> Go ahead. So. This thing that God says, okay, so Moses, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Translate that how you want. God's response has always intrigued me. He says, who gave human beings their mouths? Who mm. makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Okay. When I think of people who are deaf or mute or blind, I think of that as an anomaly of sin, okay? So God is actively taking responsibility and saying, who makes these people these way, this way? Isn't it me? So I think of this as a biological breakdown, a malfunction of how nature is supposed to work because we live in a sinful world. I, if I see a human being that has kind of a profound defect like that, that's where, that's where I lay the blame. And God is taking ownership of it. And this feeds, this is like, this is one of those things like uh, insurance policies call floods and major natural catastrophes. They call them acts of God, as if God reached out and did this thing. Well, this is God essentially saying, I reach out and I do these things. These are my decisions, right? And so, like, my impression of that has always been in the Old Testament, 
it was a kind of a theocracy where if something happens in the world, it can be laid at God's feet. It can be attributed to God. Remember back when we were talking about Job, the entire book of Job passed and the devil was never once acknowledged, even though the devil was doing all of this stuff. Why? Because God gave permission. And because God gave permission, it is what? God's will? I don't know. See? Like, that's mm-hmm. weird. Because in, in the New Testament, Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world. And he says, he has nothing in me. Like, like this, this, this is a separate force. The mm-hmm. father of all lies, the father of all evil. Like, it's a separate force. But here we have God actively taking credit for what, to me, are results of sin. And that's very strange. Does anybody else have any thoughts on that that can please make me smarter? <laughs> well, it is It is interesting, and it's hard for us to grasp the idea that bad things happening could be within God's will, which is not to say that God caused it, but that he allows it so that his ultimate goals can be attained. And gonna, those ultimate goals are far greater than the bad things that are happening. We're going to see that um, again and again as the same thing, is that these phrases that God hardened pharaoh's heart you know yeah we see that phrase but then again earlier in the verse that karen read in genesis 15 this is this is hundreds of years before pharaoh that that god knows that pharaoh will as i read it choose to not let them go right this is way in advance and one could look at that like, well, God knows that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, but then that gets into removing um, freedom of will. And the God that I see, with the exception of the phrase that God hardened Pharaoh's heart here, um, that God allows people to make choices just through the whole Bible. I mean, if there was ever a time when God was going to say, you don't get to make that choice, I mean, I guess if I opened a bottle you know, with a genie in it and said, you could choose, you could change one decision in the Bible and make them do whatever you want. I'd go straight back to Adam and say, Adam, don't do it, you know, or, or Eve in the garden. Eve, don't, don't even talk to the serpent, just walk right on by, right? Mm. So if God was in the business of making people make choices, that would have been an awesome place to do it. But yeah. we see freedom of will just keep going and keep going. I mean, God chose to let uh, Moses kill that Egyptian. Apparently, I don't think he told him to do it, but he let him do it. Right. And so, and so Moses, maybe he'd have been in a better position to, to do something um, if he'd just stayed in Egypt and hadn't killed this person. Maybe not. Maybe he needed to learn stuff in the desert. But maybe God said, well, all right, so you didn't stay in Egypt. You kind of, as we've talked about on this, took it into your own hands. Mm-hmm. And cause this problem. So, well, what will we do now? It's like, well, okay, since you're done your own hands and you've left Egypt, let's see what you can learn in the desert as a as a shepherd. Mm-hmm. Well, and so, and it, this is reminding me of what Joseph said to his brothers. Like, you intended this act for evil, but God used it for good. You know, God used your behavior, which was their choice. The brothers chose to do that, all except for Reuben. And, you know... And it put Joseph in a completely different place than he ever would have been. And God used it to do this. Well, okay. So did God cause that? Did he allow it? Or did he just work with what the earth gave him, knowing in advance 
that this is how his servants were going to act and this is where his people were going to be. I, it's all very baffling to me and I have trouble with who to attribute what to. I don't like the idea when I see people struggling in the world around me with physical deformities or disabilities, I don't like the idea that God created them that way. That actually makes me feel physically ill. Well, it doesn't seem to make sense because Jesus spent a lot of his time healing people. And if it was like, oh, well, that's just the way you're supposed to be. So just yeah. be happy in it. He, he wouldn't yeah. have healed people. He just said, hey, you're blind. Be good with it. He didn't. He, he, he healed them. And, oh, you're lame? Instead of saying, oh, well, you know, that's just your role in life. Nope, he, he healed them. And so <laughs> we see the promise of the coming kingdom. We see over and over um, Healing is part of that. Restoration is part of that. It's the core of all of that, is it's the restoration of, of Eden, all of which has to do with the removal of the curses of sin. And so, yes, we have, we have the attribution of God causing all kinds of bad things, but we see also glimpses of, like, these things are the result of people's choices. You know, we see... Um, uh, um, oh, is it Elijah and um, Jezebel's husband? What's his name? Come on, help me out here. Uh, Ahab. Ahab. Ahab calls um, God's prophet the troubler of Israel. It was Ahab that was doing this, and it was Ahab's choices that resulted in bad things. Even in even in Exodus five here in verse two, where the, maybe we're skipping ahead a little bit, but it's on topic is that Moses shows up and says, hey, let my people go into the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Sounds like he's making up his own mind here. Like he's like, I'm not doing this. Instead of like, I don't know what's happening. I'm acting as a robot. Um, yeah, no, you can't go. I don't know why. He's pretty much taking, he's making it sound like it's his own choice right there. Going back and listening to our conversation and everything else, um, it makes me think of John 9, too, when, when Jesus is, when the rabbis are asking, you know, who sinned? This, this person is blind. Is it, is it his parents? Did yeah. he sin? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and Jesus answered, and it says, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. You know, yeah. and... And I'm thinking about, you know, disabilities and people born like that. But you know what? You see some, and I'm not saying this is 100% of the time, but you see people that overcome and, yeah. you know, right. can still, you know, do great things, you know. And even if that is having some semblance of a, of a normal life, they can accomplish that. So, you know, that's always, that's always hard. It, I think it's a struggle for anybody to to want to do that, but, you know, or try to rationalize it. It's difficult. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it goes back, like Karen was saying, where, where Joseph said, you intended this for good, but God used it for evil. evil. It's, <laughs> it's, I said that backwards, didn't I? You did. You did. <laughs> you did. And it, it didn't reverse. hurt my argument. <laughs> Sorry. Strike that, reverse it. My, my Willy Wonka, strike that, reverse it. You intended it for evil. God used it for good. Right. Where these things happen. God allows them to happen. But it's not what he quote unquote wanted to happen. 
but then he can take that and he can redirect it. And that's where free will can come in. We've talked before, but I've, I've talked before here even on this podcast about how prophecies come about. Like Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. Okay. God knew Jacob was going to do that. And so it's the he, whole thing. We can't rationalize the beginning from the end uh-huh. or where it ultimately is going to go. But God knows where it's going to go. Our but, freedom so, of choice could take us on a whole bunch of different paths, mm-hmm. but ultimately we're going to end up there. Yep. But so even when God is predicting something that's going to happen hundreds, thousands of years in the future, he's taking into account free will. He knows that people are going to act in certain ways under certain uh, directions or whatever, but <laughs> he's able to wiggle his way through those things, and he knows what the end is going to be, and that's why he is able to give us these predictions for in the future. So, you know, you guys are going to go to Egypt, but I'm going to bring you back here, and this is going to be your land, and that's going to be in part because uh, Joseph's brothers are going to do something awful and sell him into slavery. I'm not going to make them do that. That's going to be what they do, but I'm going to work with that, and I'm going to make this all good. So it's like foreknowledge versus predestination, because I'm thinking of the text in Isaiah where where God says, um, my word will not go out from me void. The thing, or it will not come back to me void. The thing that I say will happen will happen. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's like, d- does that mean that he, does that mean that he's going to override everything in his path? No, because of free no. choice, but it means that he knows the outcome and he's already working with it. Exactly. Okay. So a hundred percent that, and as we look at uh, chapter five, keeping that exact thought in mind, God knows that these children of Israel will be delivered. And he's told Moses they'll be delivered. Moses has told the people they'll be delivered. But in between when God makes the promise and what God knows is the outcome, there's a whole lot of people not knowing what's going to happen. And I'm putting myself in this place here as really like in a real personal way here is that um, God's people are tested. They're told, hey, you're going to be delivered. And they're probably thinking, yay, let's get our suitcases ready. And then all of a sudden, and Moses goes in and talks to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh goes, oh, really? You guys got so much free time on your hands? You're going to keep your standard of output. And you're going to have to go get straw to make the the bricks. And I don't know, like, mechanically how that exactly worked, you know, what how they would make bricks using straw or where they had to go. But it sounded like it was a huge additional burden to them to have to go get some of the raw materials to make bricks. And the children of Israel, they are not happy with it. I mean, they're they're getting beaten by their slave masters and they have to go struggle through all this stuff. And they are not happy. At the end of um, chapter 5, they come to Moses and they're like, why did you why did you do this? Like you're only making things worse for us. And then Moses turns to God and says in 22, why did you send me? Like why am I even here since you know since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to these people and you haven't delivered them at all. It's kind of like you said you were going to do this and that we were going to get out of it over here, but in the middle it's just like it's a train wreck. What's mm-hmm. going on? And yeah. The children of Israel had to deal with that in the in the midst of this. Now, I think it's really important to skip ahead one verse, just one verse, 
into chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Right. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Instead of like you guys trying to run away, it's like we're gonna, he's going to push you out. And he's going to push you out forcefully. And this is still going to happen. Now, we still get into, we get into the plagues, and many of which, at least the first ones, the children of Israel struggled through, same as the Egyptians. You know, they had to, they struggled with uh, um, their world falling apart, and God's people are tested. And I think, as, and I alluded to this last time, is that the exodus from Egypt has a lot to do with what we see in Revelation. We see in Revelation this phrase showing up, he who endures to the end. You know, we see a, we see that come up over and over and over. And the children of Israel, we just get to flip to the end. Uh, you know, we get to flip a few chapters ahead, and we're like, oh, we know what happens. You know, but it's oh, it's the endure part. I think that the endure part molds the character or brings forth. You know, it's almost like I think of it as gold being refined by fire. It takes out all the impurities, but it's that struggle that gets you to where God wants you to be. But I also, you know, I always go back and it's like, just like us right now, we know the end of the story. We know who wins. It, Israel knew that too, but I think they forgot because if you look back and it, it goes to what we were talking about with free will, when Jacob was leaving to go to go see Joseph in Egypt, he got up and moved. We, we, we alluded to this last week or the week before. He, he didn't pray first. He got up and packed and was going. And then finally he did stop and pray and ask God. And God said that in, it was at 46. I, you know, I am God. I am, I'm your father. Do not fear going down to Egypt. I'm going to bring you back. And Sorry I about the four generations of slavery. In Exodus. There's that. There is that. They, they, they know they're going back. They just forgot about it. Just like we know who wins the story. I think sometimes our our decisions and the way we live, we forget that. And even yeah. if we remember, we got to make a lot of bricks between now and then. Yes. And we have to endure. And it's the trials and the tribulations that we endure that I think refine our character. We're coming on our time here, but I want to back us up just a bit because when Moses does finally, well, I say Moses, through Aaron, speaks to Pharaoh and says, uh, you know, let, let the people go so that we can go out and have a sacrifice. Pharaoh's response, and this is, well, yeah, Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord? Because the, the word, you know, is... Is uh, oh, I'd have to look exactly how it's how it's written there. Let's see. Well, that's in five, five, yeah five one. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me of the wilderness. But then Pharaoh responds, "Who is the Lord?" That is a response that I hear a lot even today, where if you want to try to encourage someone to follow God, a lot of times the response I hear is, "Yeah, but which God?" Because you know. Our society today, while even though it largely doesn't recognize any kind of deity, um, the response a lot of times is, well, there's all kinds of gods. Which one should I follow? And I don't know if we've talked about it here on this podcast or just amongst ourselves, 
But, but you know, our idea is well, the god. But Pharaoh's, you know, Pharaoh. Pharaoh is. It's like a. It's like a foreshadowing of today, where people are just kind of like, well, who's God? I don't know God. I don't know your God. Why would I even listen to him? And I just thought that that was a. I thought that was a very interesting attitude to see that far back, especially after all the things we've read, even just so far in the first couple of books that we've read. read. But I, I think you have to look at society, too, and especially back with the Egyptians. Number one, they, they were on top of the top of the world at this yeah. point. There was no other right. civilization that was greater than them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think once you get to that place in society where you believe you're the end all to everything then you tend to not look for anything else that could that could topple that. So yeah. for them to say, you know what, I don't know who God is because, you know what, I, I'm in need of nothing. Go back to, you know, revelations and how the world is going to be. They had wants for nothing. They lived in a society that was everything was taken care, you know, of them. You know, you look at we go back and see how the Israelites were treated you know, as slaves, but when it originally started out, the building communities were actually pretty revered in in Egypt. They had their own cities that were built of just laborers, you know, carpenters, masons, all that kind of stuff, and they were paid. They were paid well. But I think that's where it comes from, is that they were that conceited about their their society that, you know what, they didn't need to recognize anything else, and I think that's where it comes from. Yeah. And a lot of times the pharaohs were looked at as gods themselves. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I have never been able to spell pharaoh and something that kind of struck me. This <laughs> I've week. been spelling it wrong my whole life. <laughs> Here's the thing is that um, as you as I spell it, it's fe ra. Oh, mm-hmm. ra. Uh-huh. Oh, God. Fe ra. Oh, I and my I'm imagining that that's a lot more how they said it. Ra, oh, Ra is their god. Yep. Yeah. And so like he's right in the middle of his name, and it's just like, yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. Well, you juxtapose that with today, where people are basically encouraged to be their own gods. You know, do what's right for you. Do what, do what works for you. And we're gonna find out as we go along and the Israelites or the people is, you know, they're going to find, we're going to find phrases in the Bible where it says everybody did what was right to them. And it went bad. You know, and I, I look at this, this last thing, you know, before we get ready to wrap it up, but you know, too, I see when, when people have to go out and, and have a great undertaking, sometimes they need support, you know, and I look at Abraham took, um, now I just Laban, no, I'm. I'm. Who do you take with him? His cousin. Lot. 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 I knew it was an L word. Um, but you know, you have same thing with Moses. Is like, you know what? I can't do this. I don't think I could do this by myself. I don't have the words. I don't have. You know what? I'm gonna have Aaron come with you. And all the, you know, a lot of times it's it's for that a little bit of immediate support, but it doesn't tend to pan out in the long run, where they can like depend on them. But I think God gives you that, for lack of a better term, maybe a somebody to lean on a, a crutch at first to kind of get the the movement going. Can you kind of see that or is, am I just kind of missing it altogether? Oh yeah. Well, that's what we're doing here. You know, yeah. we help each other understand things better and we all bring something different to the table. We all come from different 
backgrounds, you know, um, not one of us is going to have the exact same perspective on something as the other ones. We come from all kinds of different backgrounds from our professions. Uh, you know, Karen, Karen's a woman. Did you guys know that Karen, Karen's female? Uh, so she's got a perspective that none of us have. Uh, that explains a lot. <laughs> Amen. Uh, uh, <laughs> Tracy, you come, <laughs> uh, Tracy comes from different racial backgrounds than the rest of us. So he's got a different perspective, um, you know, and so it's it's awesome to be able to come together like this and and bounce ideas off of each other and and um, help each other to formulate our outlook on the world. You know, if we were just sitting in our own bubble, man, oh, man, I think we'd be in really sad shape if if uh, if none of us ever listened to anybody else to to try to formulate our worldview. Well, um, the last thing I think I want to point out here is the chapter ends after everybody is saying, hey, you know, I thought we were supposed to be saved. This isn't working out. The chapter ends with Moses going to prayer and he takes I, I love this. He takes his complaint to God. He literally goes to God in prayer and complains to God. And we don't tend to think of that as a valid thing to do. You know, we don't tend to think that we can tell God that we're not crazy about what's going on. And then like Eric pointed out in the very next chapter, and we'll talk more about this next week, but how God says, aha, but now you're going to get to see something. And that's the way the chapter ends. I love. I just. I just loved that 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 Moses was able to. He felt okay to go to God, and saying, "What you said is going to happen isn't happening." And I think that's okay for us too. When we see that we, or at least we think things are supposed to happen a certain way, it's okay for us to go to God and say, "But why isn't it happening?" But then we have to be willing to listen. And, and try to hear God's answer. And if we listen, if we're, if, we're, if we're open to the answers, we'll hear. Maybe not in a literal way, but we'll, we'll hear. We'll understand in some way. We'll get that something is happening. And we always have to remember that God always keeps his promises. If he's promised it, it's going to happen. And we don't have to worry about that. Well, next next week... We will continue here in Exodus. We're going to do chapters 6 through 10, and we're going to continue through there. We're going to start here reading about some of the um, the plagues. And those plagues get real interesting, so uh, be sure to tune in to us next week. In the meantime, remember that you can reach us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. You can find us on Facebook, search for Adventure Through the Bible. Be sure to share the podcast. Make sure that your friends and neighbors and relatives and everybody, if you care about them, let them know what's going on here and help us to spread the word of God. And make sure you subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify and several others. So be sure to find us there and subscribe so that you get them every week. Uh, We hope that you have been blessed by this, gotten something out of it, and uh, we will talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening. See ya. Thank you.